Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about Eighth Grade, a well-received indie film released in 2018. At Rotten Tomatoes, the critics' consensus reads, Eighth Grade takes a look at its titular time period that offers a rare and resounding ring of truth, while heralding breakthroughs for writer-director Bo Burnham and captivating star Elsie Fisher. That endorsement translates to a tomato meter score of 99%, which actually leaves me wondering what one out of 100 critics disliked about the movie so strongly that they gave it a negative review. However, as always here on Below the Line, we're not concerned about what the critics think. I did not work on this film, but I am a huge fan. This movie is easily one of my top 10 favorites for 2018. With that in mind, our discussion today might get into some spoilers. So if you haven't yet watched the movie, I strongly recommend you stop the podcast now, go watch the film, it's definitely available streaming on Amazon Prime, and I'm not sure where else. And then come back for a visit behind the scenes. That's what my guests today are going to share. First up, Evelyn Fogelman. You are the second second assistant director on eighth grade. Welcome to Below the Line. Hi, good to be here. Evelyn, you and I met on the HBO comedy Veep when they were shooting in Baltimore. I was the second second AD for a bit, and you day played as a PA. But your IMDb page is a mix of work across departments. Tell us what led you working on eighth grade. Uh, so working on eighth grade, I got the call from a second AD that I had worked with on a little indie film out in Massachusetts um, that barely saw the live day. Um, and she gave me a call and was telling about this new project they were going to work on and, and asked if I was good with children, which will very much come into play in this. And uh, yeah, I was interested in the project. I knew of Bo from his you know, previous work, his YouTube work and all that. So it sounded exciting and I, I wanted to jump on board and see where it went. Oh, thanks, Evelyn. Well, we're glad you're here. Next, we're joined by Dan Fisher, Property Master. Dan, welcome to the show. Hi, Skid. So Dan, reviewing your INDB page, your credits in the property department include Godzilla, Black Swan, and Girls, among many. I'm extrapolating a New York commonality, but perhaps you can add some more nuance to that. Well, I'm based in New York. I've, I, I came here in 86. Uh, I grew up in West Virginia and always dreamed of living in New York City. So the idea of coming to live in one of the greatest cities in the world uh, from a town of 800 people to work uh, on, on movie sets with big movie stars and free food uh, was a very appealing uh, uh, lure for me. No, seriously, too, I've always loved movies ever since I was like six years old, and, and to be a part of it in any way has always been really my dream. Oh, thanks, Dan. Glad you're with us. My final guest today is Eddie Cohen, who is the Chief Lighting Technician, or gaffer, on eighth grade. Eddie, welcome. Oh, thank you very much, Skid. Thanks for having me. So, Eddie, your INDB page tells me you've been working electrical for more than 35 years Tell us a little more about the arc of your career. The arc of my career? Well, I actually <laughs> learned how to operate arc lights in the early 80s and used them on a film called The Soldier in Buffalo. I worked in rock and roll as a rock and roll lighting technician in Austin, Texas. I started on a college theater in Gambier, Ohio, for Kenyon College. And I just thought if, if I could just make a living setting up lights and hanging out with these types of people, then everything would be okay. You know, Eddie, um, you and I actually have an IMDb overlap in that you worked as an electrician on 2004's Spider-Man 2, and I'm credited as an additional AD for the second unit in L.A. On Spider-Man 2? Do you remember? I was the, uh, I was the, the main unit uh, generator operator, so I was on the set every day, plugging in the trucks, keeping the load balanced, and uh, eating craft service. And were you doing that in LA or in New York or? In New York. Okay. Oh, in the New York side. So yeah, I did some of the, I think they locked off a street in LA for some of the uh, street work, I think is the only thing that I came on. So we were coasts apart. Well, Eddie, <laughs> that's movie production for you. Okay. Enough introduction around. Let's talk about eighth grade. Now to start folks, I want to give some context to our listeners concerning the shoot overall. So first, where did you guys do this filming? I, if you don't mind me starting, uh, it, we filmed it in Rockland County, New York, mostly, uh, which is about 35 to 40 miles north of the city. And that was actually one of the main reasons I took this job. I live in Rockland County. And so ordinarily, I have to commute from where I am, the suburbs, into the city, very oftentimes Brooklyn. So that is an hour and a half to two hour commute each direction for me on a, on a typical morning. 
So to be able to work in, in Rockland County, uh, specifically this town, the main town we filmed in was called Suffern, New York, uh, was, was a definite plus for me deciding whether or not to take this job. Yeah, Dan, that is pretty rare to live so close to where you're filming in this industry. Yeah, uh, I had the exact opposite. I had the I had the hour and a half to two hour commute every day from Brooklyn. <laughs> well, you could have crashed on my couch if you really wanted, Evelyn. All I had to do was ask. <laughs> now, Eddie, you're not you don't live in New York. You actually is it? You live in Minnesota, is that correct? Yes, my permanent residence is now in Minnesota, but I had an apartment in the East Village and lived there for you know. 20, 25 years working on productions in New York City. But uh, I met someone on a job in Minnesota, and now I live here. Oh, congratulations. So let's talk some more about the shoot. How long, uh, how, many, how many weeks did this run? 27 shooting days. 27 shooting days, so... So about, about a month. Okay. And were you guys doing six-day weeks or five-day weeks? Five-day weeks. Yeah, and, and for me, there's, there's always a certain amount of prep. I mean, I know for every department, there's, there's a certain amount of prep. I had, I think, four, four to five weeks of prep prior to shooting, uh, which is, for me, the most imp important part of, of the whole damn thing. If I don't prep properly, my shoot is a disaster, and guys like you are yelling at me every day. <laughs> when you say, you mean not guys like me anymore. Uh, first, you... <laughs> first eight. Guys like Evelyn. <laughs> Guys like Evelyn. Yes, people, people like Evelyn. Just kidding, Evelyn. Evelyn I never, never had yelled at Dan. No. <laughs> so speaking of the AD team, I know that this was a non-DGA film, at least during filming, but was that true? Was it non-union across the board, or are you guys? was this a union job for you guys? It was a, a, a local 52 job, I, IATSE. It was a contract. We have different levels of contracts depending on the budget of a, of a particular film. This particular film was extremely low budget. So we had the lowest rate you could have, which is tier one. I don't usually say yes to tier ones. And, and I'll go into why I said yes to this, I guess, at another point, because again, I want to let Eddie tell his perspective. But uh, besides, besides the location, there are many factors why I said yes to this. But just to this was a, a very low budget movie, which meant that we were not paid what we're, we're getting used to get, being paid. In fact, I could have made a lot more money not being the prop master, just being a guy who shows up with much less responsibility on any other job than this. But there are reasons that I did take this job. What, what about you, Ed? Why did you say yes? Well, let me, I life? heard Eddie got paid full rate on this. Dan, I just think you're <laughs> yeah. the only one who got paid low rate. Yeah. Eddie, what's, the, what's the story on your involvement? <laughs> I like to work in the barter system. <laughs> so I was paid in corn, <laughs> soybeans, which as you know, is it, it's on the rise or maybe it isn't. I took Bitcoin. Because after I'm, moving to Minnesota and not being on the New York scene quite as much, I don't get offered gaffing jobs in New York City. So when one comes along, particularly one with a good script, that's kind of how I make my decision. Do I like the script? And does it fit my schedule? And it was kind of a middle of the summer job in New York and it was going to be up in Westchester. And you know, I have some pals in the electric department. They're saying, come on, Ed, come back, do a job. Let's work together. And that's what happened. That's, that's what turned it for me, the people and the script. There is very good fishing in Rockland County, by the way. I don't know if you had a chance to <laughs> do it. We had a pole on the truck, but I don't know what it was. Uh, something, the meatball sandwiches got in the way. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> You, know, you guys are only shooting five-day weeks. You should have at least a day on the weekend to go fishing each time. I think you guys missed an opportunity. Evelyn, weigh in here as well. So had you done a lot of AD work before taking the second second on this? I had done some. So I, had, I was the second second on the film we did out in Massachusetts. And uh, I had done some first AD work for some, like, Discovery ID stuff in and out and some second AD work for them as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I, as, as you've seen from my MDB, I bounce around quite a lot in different departments even. And, uh, but this was – and I had been the second second on uh, Jackie in Washington, D.C. That was my biggest background setting – chaos to date and uh, that that experience working on that film is what kind of led me into doing eighth grade because we had some very large background days and that's why they brought me in again this the, the pay was really low um there were there were a number of factors that that made me say yes because when i first got the call to to offer be offered eighth grade it was from the de designer his name is sam lisenko 
who I'd worked with and is a great friend. And I, I just loved working with him. And when he called me, Sam, the very first thing Sam said, as soon as I said hello was, it's tier one, you're going to say no, but just listen. Those were the very first words he said. He said, everybody tells you they have a great script. This really is a great script. And production is going to work on ways of making the pay not so horrendous by kit rentals, by little bonuses, whatever they can do. They want to get the best people for this job in all departments. So, and, and I did read the script and, and, and toward the end of it, there's a, there's a particular scene with the father and this very long monologue and it's, I'm reading it and I'm literally crying as I read it. And I said, I, God damn it, I have to say yes to this job. My wife's going to kill me, but I did. Well, I think that's a good segue into talking more about working with uh, Bo Burnham himself. This is his feature film debut. Now, for folks who are not aware, uh, he's a comedian. He's got a couple of specials on Netflix. Um, if you watch them, uh, they're, of a, they're of a tone and personal in a way that you can see some of that, how it translates into eighth grade, I think, at least um, when I revisited. Um, but uh, I'm curious uh, what it was like working with him on set. Is his comedian uh, is that a persona that that he shows on stage that he's different on set tell us a little more about what it was like the comedian is definitely a, a, to a degree a persona um he when he was working he was working um he's very light-hearted in a lot of ways himself but uh he he locked into a level of focus that i think all of us really admired when he was on set he showed up ready to work every single day with his homework done to a degree that was inspiring I, at least for myself seeing that kind of effort be put in and that kind of vision go towards a project i unlike evelyn um you know i'm a i'm a bit older than her i'm 55 now so you know i go on youtube but i'd never heard of bo burnham before um i was not and and whenever i hear the words youtube personality that automatically scares me um that it's going to be some brat who who doesn't understand anything beyond what's you know beyond the, the circle around himself or herself and so i was right away i took I, I i took to Bo just on the first meeting that he was not at all like i expected certainly much taller but also just much more personable and much much more relaxed and and i don't know about you eddie but i've worked with a lot of first-time directors and a lot of the first-time directors especially when there's guys my age and maybe your age too where they're, they're off the bat kind of intimidated by our age, by our gray hair, because they're afraid that, that guys like you and me are going to somehow take the movie away from them, that they have to show they're in control. And, and, and Bo was never like that. Bo is one of the most collaborative and open directors I've ever worked with. And that is a tremendous testament to him as a director in general, and especially for a first time. I agree with you, Dan. I, I found Bo to be really impressive really intelligent. He understood what people were saying and he could respond to them very succinctly and, and to the point. And to what Evelyn has to say, he was very, very prepared to work. He was a real working director. And I was, uh, I was inspired by his attitude too. There's something that Bo Burnham has that directors need, and it's the ability to get the performance out of the actress that matches the tone and the, and the energy of the script. And I would see him do a take with Elsie and it would be, yeah, okay, that's a Hallmark movie. And then they would, he would work with her and then he'd get another performance and I'm like, oh, that's network television quality. And then he'd keep working with her and then it would be, oh, this is a feature film. Yeah, and he put so much time and effort into building a relationship with, especially Elsie, but in the entire cast really, um, that was he he created this this safety and this this space for them to work that was so revered and again i think everyone really respected hit the space he created for them and just to piggyback on what eddie says the performances he got out of such young you know somewhat experienced but still very young performers like i remember commenting on the fact that elsie was playing a character that was going through the exact same things in her life that Elsie herself in some ways was going through. So to be able to take that being so, such an immediate part of her life and portray it with such subtlety, with such uh, honesty on screen, that takes a lot of work. And, and Bo was there with her every step of the way, really guiding her through that process. And 
and understanding and listening to her and and guiding that energy that she had into that what we see on screen is a fantastic performance from a young actress and i don't want to take any credit away from the casting department by saying that he was very lucky to have cast elsie but she was far beyond what i had expected in terms of not only her ability uh, as an actress and, and what she brought to the performance, but what she brought to the set every day and her family. She, she, her father was on set and her br little brother was always on set. And they were just so cool. I could spend time just, just talking with the dad. Uh, and, and, and Elsie, I learned so much from. What, one thing that was very important to me as prop master was trying to really understand the world of, of this person. Uh, in general, of, of, of girls of this age and of this generation. And I, I know that Elsie had a great impact on, on many of us, include, certainly on Bo, in terms of what was presented on screen. Uh, famously, he originally, in the original first draft, or earlier drafts of the script, he had written that her character was on Facebook constantly. And Elsie came on and said, my generation doesn't do Facebook so much. You know, we're into Instagram, we're into Twitter. Facebook is for, you know, our parents. And that's, that's what my kids tell me. My daughter, is, at the time, my daughter at the time was 17 years old, and, and she had told me the same thing. So I really enjoyed working with all of the kids, but Elsie especially. Well, it's definitely Elsie's movie, and all the credit she's I'm getting in the sense that her performance really comes across. Um, but it's interesting to hear. When you say that she had some ideas on the script and such, was it collaborative on set, or was these things worked out before you guys actually got to shooting? There was a lot of collaboration on set, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there was a lot done before. Bo had her and a lot of the, the cast in rehearsals days and, and weeks prior to shooting. Um, but there would still be moments where Elsie would come to Bo and say, you know, and, and address certain things and, and they would work stuff out together uh, right there on set and really find those moments. And in, in my case, in my particular job, collaboration on set is both a wonderful thing and a very scary thing. Because if the director suddenly says, hey, you know what, I want a birthday cake in this scene, and we <laughs> hadn't talked about that, I've got to send somebody out to find a birthday cake. And as wonderful as an idea as that might be, we only have so many hours in the day and so much money in the budget. And so Bo was wonderful with me in terms of collaborating ahead of time. During that crucial four to five weeks of prep, coming in with ideas, or I would show him ideas. You know, again, I had, uh, my daughter at the time was 17. So I would get her input, Phoebe's input, and, and, and come in the next day and said, hey, what if we do this or that? And if he thought it was right for the character, he'd go, that's awesome, that's great, bring it in, let's do it. And, and sometimes even the, the rewrites would reflect that. But then at the same time, he knew the limits of being on a, on a set in the middle of Rockland County with only so many hours to shoot. He did not do that, hey, I've got a great idea, let's have a car chase. Yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, that being said, on, on our end, dealing with the background, there's a lot of shots of kids doing strange things in the movie. And that was a lot of Bo auditioning those actual kids who were coming in just to be background and saying, hey, what, what's a cool talent you have? What's a special thing you can do? And so like the kid that, that flipped his eyelids... <laughs> upside down i've never seen that in my life but anyway so bo bo went to all the kids it was kind of like show me something you can do and and almost all of that was stuff that they came up with in the moment that then ended up in on screen uh which was really really funny like the stacking the markers the picking the the pick girl picking at her braces that she was just doing that sitting waiting for a take one time and she he he saw her and went can you just do the can we just come right here and do that on camera and it you got these really magical authentic kid moments because those were very authentic kid moments. And I want to touch on when you're talking about the kids with the special talents. The one question I get asked the most from people about eighth grade is of course, what was it like working with that many kids? And I want to say the kids were better behaved and more attentive and better at taking direction than most adult background I've worked with. I would tell, I would tell kids, you know, we had some fairly complex movement in some of the hallways and stuff, kids going from point to point to point and having to remember basically, you know, proper blocking in certain instances. And I remember there was this little girl, she'd be about three feet tall and she would come up to me cause I was running around like crazy and we'd change stuff to make it work for the shot. And she'd come up and she, she would go, uh, excuse me. And I'd be like, yeah, 
She's like, well, you had me going from the locker to then over here. And then you were going to go have me talk to this guy and then talk to this guy. But now this guy's over here. So what do you want me to do here? And I was like, you're paying attention <laughs> that well. And, and I've had, I've, I've literally had adult backgrounds, like thinking back to working on Jackie that couldn't walk in a straight line and remember where they were going. And, and these kids were so focused and so into it and like, created their own little characters and, and really brought that to life. And I tell them, okay, you guys are going to go and you're, this is your friend group. What would you do in, in your friend group and stuff? And they would all come up with something. And, and I can thank Bo a lot too, for again, having these ideas and, and talking to the kids and really infusing this, like we, I want you guys to be like you would be at school. Uh, what would you guys do if you're at school? Would you hang out at this locker? How, how much do you, do you move around and what's this feel like? And, um, and again, having a director that had that much vision, even down to the, the background was awesome because we weren't creating anything out of thin air. Everything had purpose. Everything had, had vision and, and it was super fun, but yeah, I can't, I, I wish I had horror stories of working with kids. Seriously, the best background I've ever dealt with in my life. I would take, I would take 300 eighth graders over 300 adults anytime. <laughs> Let's talk more about working with the kids. So often in Hollywood, when we're shooting, say, a high school scene, I recall we would do what we call 18 to look younger. In other words, we get adults that look like kids so they can fill these out. And, you know, working with kids, there's all kinds of rules. But 18 to look younger is not going to pass as 13. So I'm assuming you guys had actual 12 to 15-year-olds on set the whole time. Every single one of those kids was actually the, the background kids were all kids that went to that school. Uh, the school we were shooting at in Rockland County, those were those were actual sixth, seventh, and eighth graders that attended that school that came to school to shoot this movie during the summer, which was I thought very impressive just in and of itself. I can't imagine wanting to go and see your old classrooms over the summer <laughs> break. Um, yeah, no, those were those were really really kids that were that age, and they were they were great. They all were really great. The scene where the camera is dollying down the the hallway, and there's you know, kids on both sides of the room looking at Elsie, like, oh, who are you and what are you doing in our high school? Just was so accurate. Bo Burnham gets the credit for using real people and telling them to just be themselves. Authenticity was always, always emphasized, making it as real as possible and, and, and using what those kids brought to the table. Yeah. And those kids have, they just, they are real. They look real. I mean, you see so many movies like High School Musical or, or anything on the Disney Channel and they all look like kids who want to be actors. And on, on eighth grade, we had just regular Rockland County kids who had no such aspirations. They just thought it would be cool to do for a couple of days and make a little bit of money. And in my case too, with my daughter Phoebe, that was one more thing that, that made me say yes to eighth grade is that Bo said, oh, you've got a teenage daughter? Great, we'll put her in the movie. So for two days, Phoebe, Phoebe was a little old for the junior high school scenes. Uh, so, but he put her in the high school scenes. So that was two days of work for her, a little college money. She has no Hollywood aspirations whatsoever, but it was just fun for her. And she got a free lunch out of it and craft service. And it was good. <laughs> uh, craft service. <laughs> how we, how we sell working on, uh, working on film when the money's not good. So talk some more about, uh, talking about the kids and their look. Um, I, I, I want to dive a little deeper. Now, you guys aren't hair and makeup, but Evelyn, you worked on that peripherally uh, with that team. So are we doing natural look across the board? I mean, Elsie, I think that the effort to make, whether it's blemishes or just to capture that look day in and day out with continuity, that can be tough. I mean, that's actually a pretty hard job for hair and makeup, I would imagine. Yeah, it was. But again, this was this was going back to the same thing we've been talking about. Everything needed to be as authentic. So that's, you know, Elsie has imperfect skin. That is her actual skin. We didn't add anything necessarily to it. It was more just doing basic what what her makeup would look like if she had done it, you know, in her bathroom in the morning, like in the scene we show of her doing the YouTube tutorial. Um, and uh, she kind of came to the table with some ideas for stuff of like looks that she would have. And uh, and I thought that was that was a moment where I realized just how brave this girl was because again, she was going on camera especially for the pool scene with imperfect skin and showing what she really looks like to everyone. And that was, I mean, I couldn't applaud her more for that kind of, that kind of footstep to, to 
come in there and do that. Uh, but yeah, we, we did very minimal makeup on, on a lot of the kids, uh, you know, stuff just a little bit for film and stuff to bring out certain features that, that I saw. Again, I'm not going to speak for the hair and makeup department, but again, the, the goal was always to say, we don't want Disney Channel kids. We don't want kids that are made up with fake eyelashes and this and that and the other. And uh, we want them to look like what they really look like when they go to school. And for that, it's, you know, putting too much eyeliner on. I remember being in middle school and putting way too much eyeliner on um, because you still don't, haven't quite figured out how that works. And, and that, again, those details, I think, really come across on screen to making this feel like that guttural reaction of remembering what that time of your life was like. Well, Evelyn, that must have made your job at least slightly easier in that you didn't have that two hour wait for number one on the call sheet to come out of his or her trailer. Uh, Elsie, Elsie didn't do any, any trailer, uh, trailer holdouts or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> she, was, she was all, she came to set when she needed to come to set. There was no, I won't come out of my trailer until, you know, nine other people go to set or something like that. Well, maybe on her next movie. We'll see how, <laughs> how out she is with a little bit of success. But, uh, you know, but talking about the hours and time, it's very restrictive how long you can work with kids. Like, so what did that do as far as your shooting days overall? Overall, we shot for the industry shorter shooting days because, again, we could only have Elsie for a certain amount of time. Now, we did stagger to, to maximize time to shoot. We would stagger kids' calls and bring, so, you know, bring certain kids in later so that we could get, have one kid go and then finish out the day with a different kid and things like that. So, uh, But that being said, I feel like... He, my memory serves correctly. We were shooting relatively short days and and fighting for every minute we had on on screen. Absolutely, every, every day was was a fight to make sure that we used every single minute as wisely as we could. And and we did nights as well, so that that's really that's harder work for Eddie and his crew, I would imagine, than than almost any other department. It's just lighting lighting the night and trying to get everything before before that five a.m. sunrise starts to happen on us. Well, yes and no. The interesting thing with lighting on this film for me as a gaffer was that uh, Andrew Wade from Chicago had a very naturalistic feel uh, for lighting. And in fact, he was able to use his, his red camera and take it up to a very high ASA so he could shoot at night with actual street lights. And when we did the scene driving in the car, we had a car rig that had, you know, sky panels operating with remotes, antenna, uh, adjustments but there was almost no lighting necessary we didn't have to have cranes and musco lights and lights in the trees and lights on everybody's yard and electricians wiring all day long we just used what was there and added just enough to get the image for the movie well yeah i i recall seeing the movie and saying oh yeah we don't have that nuclear dashboard look of nighttime car scenes mm -hmm. where it's just glowing in their face we didn't have that for the first week of the film, I don't think I turned a single light on. Andrew would use the light coming in the window and the lights that were already in the classrooms. And maybe we'd turn off a bulb here and there that was creating a glare. And then he would adjust the, the image with a computer that was connected to the camera. And it was uh, kind of amazing for me to see as a gaffer, like, really? Do it, can I go home? <laughs> Which gave us a lot more time to, to get all those kids wrangled, thankfully. We were never waiting on lights. <laughs> not, you don't wait on lights when you're not lighting. Well, but also, also aesthetically, that just makes perfect sense that we have, a, we, we have kids that look like kids. We have, a, we have a story that's humor is a little out there, but not much. It's a pretty naturalistic story. And even the laughs come from situations from which we can all identify. So you don't want that glossy lit look. You want it but you don't want it to look ugly, uh, but you want it to look real. And, 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 and even just, the, not even just the lighting, I think, but the way it was framed and the way it was shot. It, it's not that the camera stood stock still, but you didn't have, uh, you didn't have a fisheye lens. You didn't have these, you know, tricky camera shots. It was, it, it was functional and, and yet it worked. It, it worked aesthetically as well as, as what we had time to do in a given day. And, and I just have to say, too, that, that the whole thing of we have only so many hours in the day to shoot with the kids, that was yet another selling point that was brought to me early on, uh, which was the producers said, you know, we're only going to have so many hours in our day because of these kids. So we're, we're not going to go over 12 hours. 
And, 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 and everybody always says that. You gotta understand, I've worked on a, a lot of movies and they always say, oh, it's not gonna be long hours, don't worry about it, and it always is. We have a hard out at midnight and they're at four in the morning, you're like, what happened to that hard out? So this, these folks really meant it and, and I gotta give it up to the production team, Jamin O'Brien, who was our line producer, and A24, which backed this film, they really had as, as much as you could to get the movie made. They had our interests at least in mind, uh, that we don't wanna kill the crew, we wanna, we wanna make this a good experience for them, we wanna give them money in whatever way we can, given our constraints. And I think they did as good as any low budget production I've worked with maybe ever, at least in a long, long, long time. And I've done a lot of low budget movies in 32 years. Yeah, here, here to Jamin O'Brien and A24. Yes. Managing it, they, they, they had enough shoot days to really tell this story. They didn't try to pack it into a, oh, let's see if we can do this in 16 days. Because that's where everybody gets killed. Especially with, uh, Evelyn with a note, the 90 minute commute each way. If you're on set for 10 hours and then you have a 90 minute commute, that's a 13 hour day. So you yeah. just barely make your turnaround. And I was traveling every day with my remarkable best boy, Ted Goodwin, and the producer, who both lived in Brooklyn. And so we would talk on the way up and we'd talk on the way back. And we still got enough sleep to be able to talk the next day. Yeah, that was something we we brought into strong consideration was that most of our crew, you know, with the exception of Dan here with his 10 minute commute was uh, <laughs> was commuting a solid hour and a half each way every day uh, to and from and, and to and from the city to and from Brooklyn. And we we tried to, to make sure that we accounted for that with our call times and everything, making sure everyone made their turnaround being way out there. So we weren't so we weren't killing people. Yeah, a lot of humanism on the crew. And I think it may have started at the top with Bo. He was a humanist, and so we all got to be humans. That is, that is 100%. Um, I never felt disrespect. Uh, whatever few times I could recall uh, that he might have gotten snappy or short with me, he would come up to me later and say, you know what, I'm sorry, man, I'm just under a lot of stress here. I didn't mean, and I'd always say the same thing, we're cool. You know, it's, you're the director, you have the right to, to say what you want, it's your set. But I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that you have the humility and the humanity to come to me and, uh, and, and say, I'm sorry. You don't have to, but you did. And that means a great deal to me. Yeah. And, and Bo really did come in every day wanting to be better than he was the day before, which, again, was just inspiring to work around and work with. If, if something had gone wrong the day before, there wasn't the finger pointing. There wasn't the trying to find the scapegoat. There was coming in and saying, OK, how do we do this better today? How do we make how do we not have that happen again? How do we improve on this? And listen, and, and props to you, Evelyn, and your team, Dan uh, Taggett's the first AD. Uh, there was not finger pointing. There were, I, I never felt under the bus. And, and I know every department feels like they're the ones that get thrown under the bus. Uh, mine certainly always is, is a convenient target because props is so obviously easy. You didn't bring the gun, you know, that kind of thing. If you don't bring the gun, you have to rewrite the scene. So, uh, but I always appreciated your team. Uh, Evelyn, for not ever throwing me under the bus uh, or not ever finger pointing. If there was a problem, we'd huddle up. How do we solve the problem and get it done? That's all that matters. Exactly. And that was, and that was something that's always been important to me was the same thing. I like to go in and say, how do we, how do we take yesterday and make today better? Um, and I, we had such a, we had such a good crew and everyone was really, really communicative. If something was going on, you know, Eddie, if something was going on with the, the lighting we did have, Eddie would come up to me and say, Hey, look, you know, we have to switch this out. This is what's going to happen. It's going to take me this long, you know, and we would be able to then work with that. <laughs> fine, fine. I got to put another quasar in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the circuit breakers in the house where we were filming the end of the movie were installed by comedians, I think. <laughs> I, I remember that day. I remember yeah, that I remember day. that day. Um, <laughs> no, we can't use the Honda. I can hear the generator. I'll move it further down the street. Whatever had to happen, happened. And everybody was respectful. Respect is a two-way street. And it was a two-way street. Yeah. And that was a special thing to be a part of where we had that mutual respect. I'm sorry to your listeners who might be expecting a bitch and moan fest. We're not going to give it. <laughs> Never again. I'm just going to bend down and smooch Bo Burnham ass all day long. 
Eddie, when you mentioned Andrew, we're talking about, uh, is it Andrew Wade, the cinematographer? Yeah, he pronounces it Wade, and everybody calls him Drew. And had you guys worked together before? I had never worked with him before. He called me up and interviewed me on the phone. I was out in Minnesota gaffing a small film out here. And he said, so we're going to be using the Luminaire program and the, uh, and the Centennis for wireless DMX. Are you okay with that? And I said, yeah, I will be by the time we start shooting. <laughs> I made a couple of phone calls, got a hold of Rat Pack in Los Angeles. Uh, I got the, the wireless transmitters I needed. And when I showed up on the job, we were able to do it. But uh, Drew was a pretty easy guy to work with. He, he had a lot of facility with that camera and his computer to get images with just minimal lighting. Very just a little here, a little there. That's all it would take. And that's probably why it looked so real. Yeah, Drew, Drew is to date one of my favorite cinematographers I've ever worked with because he was, he was so easygoing, he was so creative, but he was so efficient with what he was doing. And he had such a, you know, understanding of his craft and, and that confidence came through in working with him with, with everything he did. He did it with such confidence. Do you have something to say, Skid? Haven't heard from you in a while. <laughs> <laughs> now, when uh, when the guests take it away, you guys are you guys are filling the spots. But I will take the opportunity, uh, Dan, to dive a little <laughs> deeper on the props. Now, for example, the phone that Elsie uses is practically another character in the film. So you've got the, the hero phone throughout the whole thing. It actually gets cracked at some point. Tell me more about managing props such as the phone or other props that come to mind on a low budget indie film. Well, first of all, in, in general, uh, films now are much more dependent on electronic devices than they've ever been as storytelling points. Um, in the quote-unquote old days, let's say before 1995, uh, characters would get into cars and visit each other and talk, and that would be a 10 to 15 minute scene. And now everybody ha pulls out the phone, texts, we have a close-up on the screen, and we get that same information in 30 to 45 seconds of screen time. So yes, they're very, it's very, very important now to have devices. And so very often now, what prop masters like myself or all of my peers do is one of the first calls we make in prep or emails is to the Apple product placement representative to say, hey, you know, we're gonna have this need for this stuff Here's a copy of the script. Uh, and, and Apple has always been very easygoing, very smart, very early on, to build their brand by putting it in as many movies and TV shows as possible. They, they don't give us the computers or the cell phones. They loan it to us. We send it back, or they let the crew buy it for half price at the end of the job. But that's another story. So anyway, yes, it's very important that we have working devices in any movie. In eighth grade, you're right. It is something of a character. Uh, or it's, it's certainly something that's a definite means of getting from one situation to another. And to Elsie, to the to, to character of Kayla, it's, it's, it's everything. Her laptop, her phone, she, she has problems communicating face-to-face -face with people, but she has a much easier time by communicating with whoever might be out there watching her videos. And even, even when she starts to make some friends with the high school girl in the film, it's still a lot of it's by texting and, and, and chatting on the phone. And once she comes face to face with that girl uh, later on in the mall scene, she doesn't have a lot to say, you notice. She kind of clams up because she doesn't have that device as a protective barrier. Um, how that affects me as a prop person is I have to get these phones and these laptops. We sent the script to Apple and their response was, well, you have a scene in there where the screen cracks and we don't want that. We'll send you whatever you want, but you, you have to take out that scene or the scene has to change. We don't want people thinking that Apple's iPhone screens crack. Now that might sound, that may sound ridiculous because we all have cracked our screens at one time or another, but I get it. I'm not demeaning Apple in any way because they pay millions, for all I know, billions of dollars on a yearly basis to send out the message that Apple products are the best and will make your life better. So this idea that there might be any flaw represented with, with that product, that's wasting their money to say like, well, it, it cracks if you just drop it on a the floor. They don't want to see that. So 
I went back to Jamin and I went to Bo and I said, we've got this problem. You know, we, we want to have these products, but we can't, uh, we can't really afford to buy them unless you change the script, Bo, so that the screen doesn't crack. We are not going to get these for free. And Bo was like, no, this is very important to me. The screen has to crack. And at the time, I'll be very honest, I did not agree with him. Inside, I kept it within myself, but I thought, why is that so important? So much is going on in this movie. Do we really need this one thing? But after having seen the movie, I realized I was wrong. The, the crack screen is important. And it does tell you something about the character and what's happening in her life. But so the, the way of solving the problem was one for the laptop, I just brought in my own. The very one I'm, I'm speaking with you right now, that was Elsie's laptop in the movie. That was Kayla's. Uh, <laughs> Did she sign it? <laughs> but the, of she course, did, you yeah. know, at, you, can, you can slip uh, one of those cases on a laptop and it looks like a different laptop. So we gave Kayla one of those purple shells that go around the laptop and then boom, that's Kayla's. And if I can't remember, honest to God, if, if we had any of the characters that had a laptop, but if so, I had other color cases with designs and patterns and stickers to take on and off. Okay, now it's somebody else's. And we did that with the phones. There are a number of characters who have phones. I live about two miles from the Palisade Center Mall in Rockland County, which is, uh, I think it's the 11th largest mall in the United States now. I bought exactly two iPhones and had SIM cards placed in. And, and then I bought a bunch of shelves for them. We had them enacted uh, so they could function as real phones. And then a lot of times on movies, like if, if you see like a spy show on TV and somebody looks at their phone and there's all these graphics and things going on, that's usually done in post, but post costs money. We didn't have money. Most of the credit of this I give to the production designer, Sam Lysenko. Sam created real life screens for Kayla and a real life YouTube channel a real life Facebook page for Kayla Day and put all the content on there. And we had Elsie contribute to that as well. What would Kayla say and give us, give us uh, X number of days worth of, of content for her Facebook. And then every time you see Elsie getting a text, that's actually the character getting a text. And we just put in the Apple ID instead of, you know, whoever it's, it's Kayla from whatever, another character in the movie. We just did everything live is, is the short, uh, short answer to the, the long question. And so you, guys, so you guys filmed all your inserts, you just on the day, as she's on having the, the conversation, you film it. Yeah, and, and I have to give a tremendous amount of credit. Uh, well, first to myself for having the wisdom to have hired my assistant, um, <laughs> Erica Severson, who has two advantages over me when it comes to making this movie. One is she's a woman. So that's very important to me. If we're doing a story about a, a young woman, but still a woman, that we, we have a woman's perspective. And, and so choices that are made for props aren't just being made by a 55-year-old man. A woman has input into that. But secondly, and very importantly when it came time to shoot, Erica is born in the generation where anything when it comes to laptops or cell phones is second nature to her. For a 55-year-old man, I'm fairly adept at this stuff. <laughs> I still have sticking points. There are things that take time for me to learn and figure out. Erica has had that stuff figured out since she was six. So when it came time to being on set, especially, and doing those kinds of scenes, I took my hands off the wheel and let Erica totally drive that. She Erica was fantastic to work with on set. She was so on it all the time. She was right there. Anytime we needed to troubleshoot something, anytime we needed a phone in someone's hand, she was on it. I, I can't speak highly enough of her. Me neither. I adore her. And, uh, and it was a small prop crew. It was essentially really Erica and myself. I mean, I've worked on prop crews. We've got eight people on set. And they're really not always doing that much more than we did on eighth grade. But you work within the constraints of budget and time. And you, you just have to figure it out all ahead of time what you need. And if, if I did need an extra person on set for a particular day, pool party or whatever, you know, we'd, we'd figure it out. Okay, we're going to have to bring up another person for that day. We've got these kids. They're going to be maniacs. They're going to be running around. E Evelyn's going to do her best, but we, you know, we're, we're still going to have a little bit of a sense of out of control that we're going to need one, one extra person. And again, production was always like, we get it. We understand. I've had plenty of productions where they're like, nope, you just have to suffer. You got to figure it out because that's all we have. We already spent half the budget on uh, a, a top line star 
you know, to, so you have to figure the, the other problems out yourself. Yeah. So to piggyback on what Dan was saying about the live screens, this is another chance for me to give a shout out to a member of my team. So I, I had two, I had great background help dealing with this. And, and this came into play in a very large way because all of the images on Kayla's Instagram are our background kids and our, our kids that we were actually using in the school. Cause again, Bo wanted it to be the, the same kids that we see on screen are the kids that are on our Instagram because those are her friends. So we, we established I have a friend group for her. And I ended up, uh, Jamin took my, my background PA, Randy, and he was, Randy was great with the kids. I brought Randy on because I had worked with Randy on a couple different projects. He has great energy. He's very animated. He's very good working with that, that younger age group. I'd seen him work with kids, background kids before. And, uh, uh, he was he was my lifeline in a lot of days because because he had that relationship with uh, with the kids that that really helped us get what we needed out of them and get them where they needed to be. So uh, Jamin took Randy and a bunch of kids to the Palisades Mall one afternoon and they went and they shot with phones all of those Instagram pictures, all of those Snapchat pictures, all of those all of those things that you see her scrolling through. So quickly on screen. We did that in the, in the breadth of shooting uh, with all those kids. We picked, I think, 15 of those kids out and was like, okay, and basically gave them game tokens, turn them loose in an arcade and just let them take selfies, let them, let them take what they needed to do so that they looked like what would actually be on a 13 year old's Instagram. Um, and again, I think that helps contribute to that authenticity. If I can bring back uh, to one question you had asked earlier, uh, Skid, uh, about the cracked cell phone. I do want to give props one more time to the designer, Sam Lysenko, because I was very, very worried once, once, once I was convinced that we were going to have to do the, the cracked cell phone. And I only had two cell phones as props on my truck. So that really meant I had one cell phone to crack. Uh, and if I screwed it up somehow, I did have a couple of the, the repair screens and all that, but I'd never repaired a screen before myself. I wasn't sure how to do it. So I didn't really want to go there. I wanted to get it right on the first shot and just keep it that way. So I was, I, I, I was a real chicken about the whole thing. Um, and, and when it came time that we had to crack the screen, I chickened out and, 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 and Sam just said, here, give it to me. And he just went over and he just took it against, I think like a, one of the living room steps or something, just went wham, just without even thinking, he just did it, wham. And he goes, here. And it was perfect. It was, it was a hole in one. And, and, and we did take some of the screen protector and we, we clear screen protector and we slapped it over or put it over there. So it would keep that it in place. And it also wouldn't, it wouldn't cut Elsie when she ran her finger along it. And that's, that's, that's how we did the cracked screen phone. One shot we got, I, I won't even say we got lucky. We had the skills of Sam Lysenko uh, to thank for that. I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> Sam, Sam was taking out any pent up rage he possibly had at that moment <laughs> on that phone screen. Uh, that, was, that was his moment to, to really uh, have a catharsis. We did something similar with lighting where we were going for accuracy. There's an, a scene with the, the father and the daughter sitting around a fire as she's burning her, uh, her eighth grade memory box or, you know, box of, of memories. It's like, it's time to burn this. It's time to bury it. So we had a fire, you know, a gas fire with a, and a prop master, uh, special effects guy. But I also had these, you know, these airy computerized lights that can simulate fire. And I had them all hooked up wirelessly and controlling them. And they were flickering. And at one point, Andrew comes out and says, you know what? Take the lights away. The actual flame bar looks perfect because it's the real flame. And that was the light in that scene. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that was impressive to, to see <laughs> us do that with actual fire. Mm -hmm. It makes you wonder sometimes if, if you know, when, when you and I have done these larger scale movies, like I, I worked on Godzilla, which you mentioned, but I was, I was one of like 16 <clears throat> prop people on there and I was by no means the prop master. I was just a, a grunt on that. But you get on these humongo budget things and it takes all day long to do like a scene or two scenes. And it, it, a lot of times it's not a big effect scene. It'll be just dialogue. And it's, I forget which, who made the, the rule that the, 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 the work expands to fit the time a lot. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's the same with budgets. It's, it, it, it's like, okay, we're going to need all these lights for the fire scene. No, just, why not just use fire? Why not just use a cell phone? 
or a cell phone? Why do we have to have a special, specially handcrafted cell phone from Sweden that costs $50,000? Just get a cell phone, you know, and, and, and that's real and it works. So why not? The work expands to fit the time allotted is, is the most accurate thing I've ever heard about the film industry. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it from Bob Stevers at Gaffer I used to work with. But who knows? He probably got it from someone else. Doesn't everybody steal? <laughs> well, you know, you guys are talking about specific scenes um, and the time allotted. For example, tell me a little bit about the pool scene, which is one of the iconic scenes of this movie. Do you guys do that in one day, two days? I mean, you could be shooting that for a week. There's so much going on there. Yeah, so the actual pool work was basically one day. Uh, everything where she's in the pool, where she meets Gabe, where we, we have that, that was largely shot in a day. Now, we were at the pool house for three days doing the karaoke scene, doing the, the gift exchange scene. I think we grabbed a few pool shots uh, in, in those extra days that we had there and like the day, the day following, if I'm remembering correctly. But most of that was filmed in one day. Uh, all of the stuff with her with her coming out and we've got the, the kids in the pool and all that slow motion work and the kid that's like spurting water through his gap in his teeth and uh, all of that. Yeah. And that was testament to some, you know, some really, that was a day. That was a day that we were gearing up for. It was like, okay, we've got a lot to do and, and very little time to do it in. Uh, thankfully it was not like 12 degrees out. That was my biggest fear was that, that it would be suddenly like a very cold day. Uh, thankfully we were shooting in summer and thankfully we, we had a, a day that wasn't absolutely frigid where these kids were, uh, where these kids were, in the water in, in swimsuits and everything. Um, and thankfully, as Bo mentioned in his, in his DGA award acceptance speech, we didn't drown any children. Um, mm. That was all, another huge Such fear a dry, of mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I was, I was having nightmares going up to that day of just some kid slipping and hitting their head on the concrete and just falling into the pool. Um, <laughs> or, well, or I believe, I believe we did have, didn't we have, we had at least a medic standing by on those days. Oh, we had a, we had a medic and a lifeguard. Yeah. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah. So no children were harmed in the making of this movie. Well, physically That's harmed now, emotional damage. Of yeah. What you put the crew through. members on the other hand. <laughs> I'm still in therapy. Uh, um, if I can go ahead and spread around some more love, since this is a very, uh, very affirming episode today, uh, pr uh, you know, shout out to our, our locations department, because this movie was uh, filmed entirely on, in different locations, from high schools to people's houses. And it's, it's never easy to persuade anybody, say, hey, you know, uh, do you mind if we take over your house for a week? And yeah, we'll pay you money. Uh, but uh, in, in exchange for that, an army is going to come in and step all over your, your clean rugs and, and go into places maybe that you didn't think they were going to go into and all of that. So they did a very good job, I thought, of, of finding very interesting and good and accurate locations and, and just managing it. So we never had problems that I recall of like, what are you guys doing? You know, there was never any, we never had outraged uh, homeowners to deal with. We, we did have one homeowner that was, was a bit more sensitive and that was the, the homeowner of what ended up being Gabe's house. Um, and that, but that being said, again, our locations department was very sensitive to her needs, very sensitive to, and, and made sure to communicate clearly with us as the crew of like how many people could be in this home. How, so that, that home was found the way it is, the way it looks on, on camera. That's how she, her home actually looks with all the, the stuff around and all that. And so, you know, it took a lot of special consideration because she, she cares very much about all those items and to make sure things weren't moved around without her knowing about it. And, uh, and again, props to our locations department for kind of managing that situation because Bo was very passionate about that house, really wanted to, to use that look. And, uh, and they were able to, to make it work with her so that she felt comfortable. We were able to get what we needed to get without disturbing her too much uh, and, and her, her house too much, which was great. Uh, I do also remember us putting down layout board in a driveway so that we didn't scratch the, uh, the yeah, new don't scratch the asphalt. The new asphalt. That was, that was, that I was forgot a, about that. The layout. Uh, that's something actually that sticks with me to this day is the layout board driveway. That was, I, I remember showing up to work that morning and just being like, what? Mm. <laughs> But the asphalt. So, uh, to clarify, so Gabe, Gabe's house, that's the scene near the end or maybe the last scene in the movie where they're having the chicken, chicken nuggets. nuggets. Chicken, chicken nuggets. nuggets. That's, right. 
that's the the sweet little date where they're having the chicken nugget meal and they've got the the like ten different sauces laid out, which is my personal favorite scene in the movie. I think it's the sweetest, sweetest, sweetest moments. And both those the, both the actor that plays Gabe and and Elsie were absolutely fantastic in finding that awkward, giggly. Again, it took me back to like the most awkward like dates I had as as a thirteen year old, where you're you have no idea how to actually sit down and talk to another another human like that and. Uh, and it was just so sweet. And yeah, and the, again, that, that home was very interesting to be in. So I want to go back to something you guys said. So you guys didn't do any stage work or warehouse work at all? Throughout we the- did one day of stage work. So the very end of shooting, we did have a day where we needed to do a lot of screen pickups. And that was done on the <clears> sound stage in upstate. Uh, and we actually built a, a three-wall set of Elsie's, just a small set of her bedroom so that we had stuff for her YouTube channel, stuff that we needed to pick up at the very end of the shoot. Uh, this was just stuff yeah. that kind of got bumped in, in shooting on location and all of that. So uh yeah one one day on the stage but it was very minimal work nine ninety nine percent of what's on screen is on location and so is that when you did her youtube videos as well or had you do them earlier so that they could be used as inserts in shooting how did that work out most youtube videos were done earlier during the course of shooting they were scheduled into the into our days to do her actual youtube videos in her bedroom in front of the camera on on the laptop um there was just like some little bits where we wanted to get clean bits of her doing her gucci moments and things like that to to make sure that we had them for the edit speaking of all location shoots eddie let's go back to what it was like for lighting because that's a you said that uh working with drew he made up for it a lot with the technology and such he was using, but lighting stuff in real time is difficult to do on a low budget. Yeah, it's difficult, but uh, all the electricians who might hear this will be interested to know that we didn't have any feeder cable on this job. You know, the transition in lighting with LED lighting, like the airy sky panels and that sort of thing, and the quasar tubes, these lights can be plugged into wall outlets. You can work really fast and not have to like lay feeder cable and pick it up and park the generator and all that sort of stuff that you do on TV shows and larger films. So that was the real difference for me to see a film that looked as good as this one did made with eight lights is, is, a, is an accomplishment. How, Eddie, how large a crew did you have on this? Uh, two. No, me plus two. And it was great. It was, uh, we were able to do everything, I think, in, in a minute or two once we knew what the light that was needed, we roll it into place, and I either controlled it wirelessly, or you just could make it brighter, make it warmer, make it cooler, no gels with, the, with these Ari Sky panel lights. The light itself is like a chameleon. Plug it in the wall and put it in the right place, and you're done. And I don't even place. know where you would have put bigger lights in, in Kayla's house. <laughs> Nowhere. You barely fit the camera in that house. <laughs> That's true. Well, Honestly, I enjoy, I hate the pay, but I enjoy doing these low-budget indie-type movies a lot more than most of the larger budget, this is going to be in 3,000 theaters in the first weekend kind of things. Well, let's talk a little bit about the reception of this film. As you mentioned, it was well-received. The film was, the DGA awarded it Best New Feature. Um, Evelyn, you alluded to that earlier. Um, Evelyn, did you get to go to the DGA Awards dinner? No, I'm the I'm the non-union uh, redheaded stepchild that did not get an invite, uh, <laughs> which was kind of surreal to to not have a DGA card and be nominated and then win a DGA award before I ever had the card. <laughs> so I'm curious if so did the film go DGA? You you mentioned something about it going perhaps in post. So Bo is that, now that is my member. Yes, Bo is now a DGA member. Um, the implications that has for the rest of us, we still don't quite know. We're still working that out with them as to what that what that means now that he has the award and and is clearly in the DGA and what that that implies for the rest of us. Well, I'm you know, I'm, and I, yeah, and I am curious on a film like this because even for example, the credits don't follow DGA guidelines because there's not a single card for the UPM first and key second. And I'm curious about residuals, about what uh, people may be entitled to. So um, hopefully that uh, breaks in your favor for all the work you did on it. Um, Anybody else see any consequences for a small budget film does this well? You've made it for so cheap, but the film is doing fantastic. For me, not this film in particular, but throughout my career, I have found that I can do really good work that I know is good work on a movie that just isn't distributed well if it's distributed at all. Uh, And then I'll have like a couple of days on something that does get seen and does get noticed, 
And when I go into interview for a job, that's where their eyes go. Oh, you did blockbuster movie. Uh, that's really impressive. And no, what's really impressive is when you can take a couple of, of, of uh, popsicle sticks and tape and turn it into a sculpture. Uh, when you can take $10 and, and coupons and turn it into a movie, that's impressive. Uh, what Eddie does, what Evelyn does, what e all of us do, and, the, and everybody off the set, we're all working under these constrictions and yet finding creative, innovative ways to make a quality product. That is the good, hard work that doesn't often get noticed. So when a little movie like Eighth Grade or, or some of the other great ones this year, like Sorry to Bother You or, or some of these other, or the documentaries, when they get noticed, it's fantastic because it's good for my career, sure, but it's also just good because I'm proud of that movie. And I can, I can point to that and say, you know, that's, I, I had a hand in that. And, and that's something that as long as that movie exists, my name is at the end and, and I can claim that and I can, I can feel that pride. Um, so working on eighth grade, I can certainly say I'm proud of. Um, and it's one of those things where we had such an intimate crew we, had, we were working on something that really felt special and then ended up being special and being so well received. Those are the projects that really stick with you more than being, yeah, being an Indian on Avengers or, or just speaking of these big temple blockbusters because there's not, the, there's not always that intimacy. Sometimes I've worked on you know, higher budget stuff where we had great time and had a great team and, and worked well together, but they don't necessarily last you like these really important films that need to be told, which are often in the indie circuit. Yeah, I can tell you for a fact that I've had a very fortunate career with indies. Going back to a little film about, uh, um, about the Catskills called Dirty Dancing that nobody thought would be much of a movie. <laughs> and then <laughs> I worked on a film called You Can Count On Me with Ken Lonergan and a couple of unknown actors like Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo. And that film was a beautiful job to work on. And uh, it ended up being a beautiful piece of work. And I think the same is true for this one. Um, and as far as the career ramifications for me personally, of eighth grade, that does not matter to me now. And, and I don't know if, if, if either Evelyn or, or Eddie know this, but I, I've, I've been living with heart problems for a number of years. Um, and in, at the end of 2017, I was hospitalized with congestive heart failure. I had a pump attached to my heart, and um, I was put on a wait list for a heart transplant. That transplant happened uh, last year, 2018. Um, I am now living with the literal heart of a 25-year-old. And so since that time, I'm no longer in the prop master business. I'm out. It's too much stress. I still work. I have another 10 years to go before I want to retire but I'm done being ahead of anything. Uh, I'm now very happy to be just one of the guys uh, showing up every day, whatever it is. Um, I'm happy to be alive. So my two last jobs that I will do with the Prodmaster credit, my last feature film will be eighth grade, and my last overall credit is the television show, The Americans. Both of those credits, both of those jobs were, were hit with a number of awards last year for best everything. And there are jobs that I happen to personally enjoy as much as anything I've ever done. So that's a hell of a way for me to, to say, you know what, I'm cashing in my prop master chips. From now on, I'm a guy who shows up on the set and moves the chairs. I don't have to tell anybody to do anything. I don't have to fight with producers over budgets. I don't have to get yelled at personally by a first AD or a director. You don't um, have to break the screen on the iPhone. <laughs> I don't have to break the screen on the iPhone and live with that uh, shilkus. So that's, just, that's, a, that's the best way I could imagine uh, taking my, my curtain call on that particular, in that particular uh, aspect of my career. So I can say anything I want on this podcast. <laughs> I don't have to worry about insulting the wrong people and not getting hired as a prop master. So... Stick around, folks. I'm going to name names at the very end. <laughs> well, I personally would love to do more films like Eighth Grade. And I think the fact that this film was made for the budget and with the size crew that it was and turned out as good as it did will be maybe encouraging to creative types like Bo and other writers and directors to take a chance on making their film and doing it with a small crew 
in New York or Minnesota or anywhere else because it can be done. Yeah. Well, it was certainly done with this, guys. This is a fantastic film. Um, also pleased to hear it was a, sounds like a pleasure to make and uh, really enjoyed you guys coming on today to talk this through. Thanks so much, guys. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so Thank much. You. I, I can't, yeah, I can't believe it's over already. Maybe it goes good. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That's a wrap on 8th grade. If you enjoyed the show, please consider rating us and leaving a comment on iTunes. It really does help new listeners find the show. If you're a fan of the podcast, or 8th grade in particular, you can see some behind-the-scenes photos on our Facebook page at Podcast Below the Line. For Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at Pod Below the Line. And if you've got feedback, send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, and thanks to John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Just search for Below the Line. Trust me when I say you're going to look good in a t-shirt. And either way, hope you'll join us again in two weeks. Really good meatball sandwiches. And <laughs> Joe Facey, we had the legendary Joe Facey as our yes. craft service guy. And yeah. you really, Skid, you really got to get Joe Facey on sometime. <laughs> You're really. He's a fantastic <laughs> presence is all I can tell you. You know, he's, Joe. He's something. <laughs> I reached out to Joe and Joe did write me back, but uh, we weren't able to lock things down. And then Eddie stepped in to, to join us. So well, he's always working and he works longer hours than any of us. So that makes sense.